Well, good morning. I'm glad you're able to be here with us this morning. Uh, I tell you, you know, this past week's really been a neat week. I had the privilege to see a couple people have some victory in some areas of their life this week. Uh, we also, many of you know that Joy Coster went home to be with the Lord, and uh, we had his uh, memorial service on Tuesday. And, and I'm just going to say this, if you missed the service, you missed a good time. We had a great time in this place celebrating his life and how he honored the Lord. And, and I do ask you to be uh, continue to pray for the family and Patsy. I think Patsy's actually here today. And uh, just pray for them. And uh, I tell you, it's just, uh, it was a great week this past week. Uh, also, uh, Kenny and Christian, many of you saw the what they did here. They actually did rehearse it. And Kenny's office is right across from mine. I actually thought they were in an argument, and I was sitting in there, and I was sitting there, oh, no, please. Christian's only been here two months, and he's causing problems. And so, <laughs> so anyway, I went in, and uh, of course, they were just kind of getting ready for this morning, so I hope you enjoyed that. I thought they did a phenomenal job introducing the new year uh, for our students and children. Well, in the blockbuster film, The Matrix, now I know that some of you in here are not into science fiction or into those kind of movies or whatever, I understand that, but there's a perfect image here of something that I want you to see here this morning. So in this movie, the main character, Neo, is offered the choice of consuming either a red pill or a blue pill. Picking the red pill would result in the truth of Neo's world being revealed to him, okay? While picking the blue pill would allow him to continue his life in ignorance, not fully aware of what's going on around him. Therefore, Neo must judge the merits of the possible outcomes of his choice. A choice of living in truth or living in ignorance. Now, let me just say this. In real life, as we all know, life is about the choices we make. We become who we are by the choices we make. So this morning, I want to challenge you to think about your life choices. Now, some of you would say, you know, well, wait a second. This sermon is way late. I mean, I've already lived a large portion of what I think I'm going to live, and, and you're asking me to consider life's choices. Listen, life choices are done every day. We make life choices every day. Some are very important. Some are not as important. So I want to ask you a simple question. Don't raise your hand. I want you to think about it. How, how well do you do when it comes to making choices? What, what, what goes into the whole realm of you making your choices? Now, how we make our choices tells a lot about our character, our integrity, who we're following, and what our life is truly all about. It also tells us who we serve, who we follow, and who we listen to and take direction from. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. While you're turning, listen to this. In our society, we are constantly being asked to choose Democrat or Republican, pro-life, pro-choice, Pepsi or Coke, McDonald's or Burger King, Verizon or AT&T. Now, I'm sick of having that choice. I tell you, I'm tired of hearing about it. But anyway, all these things are, full, are in front of us. Here's another choice. Will we follow the ways of the, and philosophies of the world or follow the will and precepts of Jesus Christ? Will we live in truth or will we choose to live in deception? The outcome of some of these decisions, listen, can be very devastating 
when it comes, if, you're, if we don't consider what's really at stake. And so this morning, I, I really want us to get our minds around, what does Jesus have to say about choices? Well, there's one thing he did say, and we know that about choices. So look there in your introduction. In Matthew chapter 6, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, which many people believe, including myself, is the greatest sermon ever preached. I mean, he covered it all. But listen to what he said. Jesus said this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then he says this, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, some of your translations would say God and money. It's really the whole idea of of those things in this world that money can buy. And so when you look at this, he is basically saying, you know something? When it really comes to this life, when it comes to the core principles of who we are, when it comes to making the choices, there's really only two choices, God's way or the world's way. And he's very clear about that. Now, most of the influence concerning our choices come from either our flesh or our spirit. Now, let me just say this. I believe before a person comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are directed firmly by their flesh. There's a, there's this, that's where they make their decisions. The Bible says once we come to know Christ, the Bible says that our spirit is quickened. It literally means our spirit is made alive. And as a result of that, all of a sudden, something else comes into play when it comes to our decisions. And so basically, for the Christian, there's really two choices. Are we going to follow the flesh, or are we going to follow the Spirit, and how the Spirit leads us in our day-to-day of what influences and what doesn't? So the flesh, let me tell you about the flesh. If you don't know this, you need to be aware. The flesh will lead us to follow and love the world. How many of you know that for a fact? It does. It just, it's, it's almost like, think about this. It's almost like the flesh and the world, and we're going to define what he's talking about in the world here in 1 John. But it seems like the philosophies of the world, what the world believes, how the world conducts itself, it's almost like the flesh says, I am very compatible with what's presented here by the world. Now, how many of you agree with that? It, it does. It's like the flesh is very compatible when it comes to the world and how it conducts itself. But the spirit, listen, is not compatible with the things of this world. The spirit is compatible with the things of God because the Holy Spirit was brought here to direct us, to to lead us into the ways of God. And so all of a sudden, when it comes to our choices, it really comes down to will we obey the flesh or will we obey the spirit? Now, let's, let's go a little bit further. The first thing we see there this morning, if you look on your outline, is the love of the world. Now, the love of the world can get us in trouble. Even in God's word, we are being asked to choose. Look at what it says. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's basically saying you got to choose. The world... Or the Father, which will it be? Now, what does John mean when he says, love not the world? The world in this context, look on your outline, the world is not nature. It's not this picture of nature. 
Last night, I don't know if you know it, but on, uh, I think, the BBC network, I was flipping through the channels, and uh, Planet Earth was on. I love those, those things. And uh, I sat there most of the afternoon uh, resting because I've been sick, okay? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> At least that's what I told Tina. Anyway, I really need to rest. I mean, I've got a big day tomorrow, and so I was watching Planet Earth. I mean, and it's just amazing to see the beauty in nature and all the different things, how God made everything. And, and be honest with you, Tina walked in, and she's looking at some things, and she said, she's made this statement, which makes, how do people not believe there's a God? Look at this. Look at the creativity. Look at how, how this plays out. So, so when, when John is talking about the world, he's not talking about nature. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Psalms 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, the earth, shows his handiwork. That's exactly what I was witnessing right there on that television. Next, the world is not people. This is not a reference to people. It, it, matter of fact, you know what the Bible says about God? For God, what? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So loved the world. That is a reference to people. That is a reference to, to, to people. God loves people. God loves lost people. Did you know that? He sent his son for lost people. God loves those who've come to know him. So we're not talking about nature. We're not talking about people. So based on these words, John is referring to something else. What is he referring to? Well, in the Old Testament, the world is demonstrated in various ways. If you were to look at the world and the way the Jews saw the world, there would be a reference to the whole idea of Egypt and its culture. There, there's definitely a, a, uh, a picture that the, the Jewish people lived a different culture than the Egyptian people. The Jewish uh, people were intended to live the way God intended them to. That was the law. But there was a stark contrast between that and the people of Egypt. They worshiped many gods, and, and their philosophies were contrary to the teachings of God's word. And so you go back to the Old Testament and Egypt and its cultures, but then you have Babylon and its cults. Babylon was a very cultic people. They were a very cultic people. And if you were to look, you would see there were all kinds of systems in place and everything was in place. A third illustration we see in scripture are the Assyrians and their cruelty, their wickedness, their evil. And it's all about the systems. It's all about how things are demonstrated. All are examples of foolish wisdom, false religions, and fearful wickedness. So look on your outline. The world is, in this context, systems of thought from society. Those systems that are built, that are in place, that are right here in our society. Now, systems that we're talking about here are those systems that oppose God in his ways. It would be philosophies. It would be uh, the way we conduct ourselves, how we come to certain matters, uh, what we worship, what's important to us. The world tells us to get back, uh, to get back at our enemies to get back at our enemies. But what did Jesus teach? Jesus taught us to forgive. And so if you look at the world system, just one place that practically living out God's word, if you say, okay, what does the world teach? Well, you got to get them back. You can't let people, you can't let people see that you're weak. You got to go after them. Fight fire with fire. But it's interesting. Jesus taught something completely different. How different is it between what the world how the world conducts itself and the way God conducts himself. Well, we get some clues here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look here on the screen. It says, for, the, for though we walk in the flesh, 
You do know we, we do, we're living in the flesh. You, you do know that. I'm, I'm talking about a reference to, it's part of our reality. Not that we should yield to the flesh, but our flesh is part of our reality. How many of you know that? Yeah, you know that through temptation. So he says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. It means this, the flesh cannot defeat itself. It takes something bigger. It takes a different mindset. It takes something different than this world offers. So what is that? For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. It's not, it's not going to come from the flesh. But here it is. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing. Now, look at this. Let's break this down. Pulling down strongholds. If you were to say, okay, if you go back to the first century and say, okay, Paul, what are you referring to here? It would have been simply, it would have been very easy because most cities uh, had walls around them, fortifications around them. And so basically what, what, what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians here in, in chapter 10, he's basically saying there, there are those things that, that there are strongholds. And, and what happens is we invite certain things into our lives, the schemes of the world, the philosophies of the world, we begin to buy into those things. Well, guess what the enemy does? He begins to build fortification around those things that we've held captive that are of the world that are, that are fostered through the flesh. And so all of a sudden, there's a fortification that goes around it. Do you realize that's why it's so hard to bring down strongholds? First of all, it's because we invite those things into our lives many times. And then the enemy has a platform of operation in our lives. And then he fortifies it. How does he fortify it? Well, it may be that you find out other people believe what you believe. It may be that the world's going along with what you believe and what you want. And all of a sudden, you see the government's agreeing with it. And all of a sudden, you see other churches agreeing with it and denominations agreeing with it. Guess what? It, it, it causes us to, that's the fortification. Are we seeing that in our world today? Most definitely. It's everywhere, and we see it. So pulling down strongholds, he said, okay, if we're going to pull this down, if we're going to really expose what's there, if we're going to tear it down where we can live for God, guess what? We won't get there in the flesh. It's got to come through God himself. And how does that happen? Casting down arguments. We got to quit believing the lie. We got to quit believing the deception. You know what we do as Christians many times? I've been there. We begin to rationalize. We begin to rationalize. How many of you are pretty good at rationalizing? Yeah, we, we can. We, we, you know what we're doing when we, when we rationalize? We're, we're engaging in an intellectual argument in which we're not bringing everything to the table. It's almost like we kick logic out, but we try to prove it a different way logically. And all of a sudden, it's there. And so the first thing we got to do, if we're going to see this stronghold disappear, move, we can't do it in the flesh. We got to trust God to expose the deception we're living in. We got to cast down the argument. We got to quit believing the lie. And then it says, in every high thing, you know what a high thing was? It was those idols, those things in which they put before the true the true and living God. Matter of fact, the, the nation of Israel was, was terrible about this. They, they, every time you turn around, they were worshiping a fa, uh, uh, some, some foreign God and, and lifting it up high. And so he's saying that you gotta acknowledge, but then you guys, you gotta, you gotta take down, you gotta dismantle, is literally the wording here. You gotta dismantle that whole system. And then 
What does it look like? It says casting down arguments and every high thing. Here it is. That exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever deceived yourself? Let me tell you what it looks like for the, the people that I've seen over the years. Sometimes someone will come in and they'll say, Preacher, can I talk to you? I'll say, yeah, come on in. Let's, let's try to work out a time we can get together. And, and sometimes they're sitting there and, and, and they're getting ready to say something. For many of them, the first time they've ever put words to what they've done. And you look there and you can tell this is going to be big because it's almost like they're pale. They're, they can't believe they're getting ready to say what they're getting ready to say. And here's what they'll say. They'll say, you know, I never dreamed I was capable of doing what I've done. I never dreamed I was capable. If you'd asked me five years ago, I'd have told you that that's a lie. I would never get involved in something like that. I never would have taken those steps over there. But you know something? I begin to buy in. I begin to rationalize. All of a sudden, as I began to rationalize, I started to, started to see things happen in my life where I can see the enemy just kind of fortified it and built those things around it that kept me from seeing what I really needed to see. And all of a sudden, he fortified it by a whole world saying, it's okay. He fortified it by uh, that talk show that comes on every Monday through Friday. And, and they basically said, live life to the fullest. And you only have one life. And if it makes you happy, just do it. And I just started buying in. And you know what? I started looking around. I found out that everyone else is doing it. And I didn't want to be left out of that. You see, <laughs> that's where many people are. And they entertain those things. And they started looking at it. And, and, and that's where I... And so you know what you have to do to get back to where you need to be? You got to bring the knowledge of God to it. And when you bring the knowledge of God, they're going to have one or two reactions. They're going to be very defensive and fortify the argument even more of their flesh or they're going to break. Most of the time when people call me, they're ready to break. And do you know what, I'm, you know what I have to bring to the table to, to help remove them from their deception? The knowledge of God, the truth of God's word. To help them to see that this is not, this is, you've been, you, you've been uh, bought. You know, the enemy's come in. He's done his thing. And then it says this. How do we do this? How, how do we move forward? Bringing every thought into captivity. That means to evaluate every thought. That means to not just rationalize that thought. It means see it through the proper lens. It, see it through the proper truth. Uh, see it through the proper perspective. But I'm to evaluate, bring it into to captivity. And how, what am I supposed to do? To eventually get to the place where I'm obediently following Christ again. That's what it takes. But so many people in this world, <laughs> they're falling for things that they never dreamed they'd fall for. Y'all have been in the same church for 20, 27 years now. And I'm just going to tell you, I've seen a lot of people come and go. I have. Uh, I was a youth pastor, student pastor for nine years. Uh, those, those people in my ministry early on, they're very special to me. And you, you know what? It's so cool to see them here serving the Lord and still listening to God's word 27 years later. But you know something that really breaks my heart is when you go out in the community and you see them and those that were a part of it, that were sitting under God's word. 
and they've gone the way of the world. They start listening to the flesh, start rationalizing. Next, the world in this context is speaking of schemes of evil from the enemy. The enemy, let me just say this, is at the core of all this. You do realize that, right? Did you know that the enemy would just soon you not know he even exists? Did you know that? Because that's part of the deception. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, you know these verses, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We think we do. We think if we can just muster up enough, we can get there. Uh-uh. That's not really where the battle is. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. They're saying there's so many things beyond what we're seeing in the flesh, beyond what's right there that see, appears to be so evident. There is a working that is going on all around us. Do you know that when the world hears us talk like that, they think we're crazy. They think we're fanatics. But you know something? You know why they don't recognize it? Because they're, the, they're being guided by it. That's where their marching orders are coming from. That's, that's, it makes sense to them to live the life that they're living because of the deception of against the powers, the rules of this darkness of this age, spiritual host of witness, wickedness in the high places. And then it says this, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. By the way, what evil day? Evil days. Today is an evil day. You say, no, it's Sunday. This is Resurrection Day. We're celebrating Resurrection. It is, but they're still evil. Every day that we live, we're surrounded by it. And having done all to stand, to stand against the rationalizations, to stand against the, the false truths that the world's trying to promote. In Genesis, a careful study reveals that the descendants of Cain, you remember, you remember Adam and Eve? There are three children listed in Scripture. Now, a lot of people know Cain and Abel. You remember Cain killed Abel. We know that story. Did you know that after those two, there was another child born? His name was Seth. Did you know that? It's really cool to think about. And then I'm sure they had other children, but those are the three that are named in Scripture. Now, now listen to this. In Genesis, a careful study reveals that the descendants of Cain lived for this world. That's what the Bible says. While the descendants of Seth live for the world to come. That is a big difference. If you were to take your week last week and say, okay, let's measure, let's, let's evaluate last week, the decisions that I made, how I live my life, the, the things that I chose to do. Did I live for this world or did I live for the world to come? I think if most of us were honest, we spent more time living for the world we see right now, the world this age instead of the world to come. Y'all, if we live for the world to come, it would totally transform our lives. If we live, if we based our decisions and our life choices on the world to come, it would totally change how we live our lives. Totally change. King Solomon in his early days lived and walked with God. Then over time, he began to live for the things of this world. Here's what he said concerning the things of this world. And by the way, wealthiest man who ever lived, wisest man who ever lived, he tried everything, the world, everything this world offered. You read Ecclesiastes, he tried it all. The same things we attempt to try, he did them. He did them. You know what he said? 
It's all vanity. It doesn't mean a thing. I tried it all. I tried it the best way you know how. It's all vanity. It's like a vapor. It goes. The things of this world leaves one empty without joy and unfulfilled. So look at the footnote on your outline. Those with a relationship with Christ cannot love the world. Now let me just say something about that. They can't love the world. They can't be satisfied. They can't be fulfilled. Because they have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God abiding in them. They'll never be satisfied with this world. They may for a moment, but eventually they'll be just like the people that come see me. I never dreamed I was capable of doing what I've done. I never dreamed my life would come to this place. Never dreamed it. And all of a sudden, because they have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God abiding in them, the attempt to love both the world and God, listen, produces inner conflict. A Christian who's seeking to live the world's way and God's way at the same time will never be at peace. Never be at peace. Now, let's keep moving. Not only the love of the world, but also the lure of the world. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, that's a very interesting verse. And basically, when we're talking about the lure of the world, we're talking about the bait of the world. We're talking about the thing that the enemy puts out there before us, the temptation. And basically, it's like, go for it. It's beautiful. It's dazzling. It'll, it'll meet every need you ever had. You're talking about a fulfilled life? Go for that. You want to be happy? Here it is. Now, the lure of the world. Look at, look at your outline. It's strategy. It's strategy. And you've heard me say this many times, is to squeeze you into its mold. Squeeze you into its mold. That's the strategy of the world. Every advertisement that you see is a strategy to squeeze you into its mold. I'm dead serious. It is. If you say in a nutshell, what, what is the world all about? It's trying to squeeze you in. Matter of fact, when's the last time you looked at a TV show and it wasn't some agenda they were really trying to push that's contrary to God's word? You know what they're attempting to do? Squeeze you into its mold. That's what's happening. And because we spend so much time watching television and it not being planet Earth. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and we're sitting there and we're being programmed. Literally, the attempt of this world is to program us. And you say, oh, you're speaking against TV. No, TV, TV can have a good thing. There can be good things associated with it. But there can be a lot of terrible things too. And all of a sudden, it's squeezing you. How do we know this? Romans 12, 2, Paul said, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into its mold and its attempts, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. You want to live a life of purpose, a life of fulfillment, the life God intended you to? You renew your mind. How do you do that? Well, part of it is not being squeezed into the way the world thinks but in the ways that God teaches. Listen to this. To realize that we are up against, we must realize what we're up against. We must realize that we are fighting the battle of right and wrong on three fronts. Here it is. You ready? This is now on your outline. The enemy is a strategist. The enemy is a strategist. And he does a great job. You know why he does such a great job? Is because he's been working with human nature and flesh for many, many years 
decades and hundreds of years, thousands of years. He knows human flesh. He, he knows. He studies. He, he's prepared when he comes after us. And he's a strategist. But then there's our flesh. You know what the flesh is? The flesh is the inspiration and the motivation. That's what we bring to the table. He brings the strategy. He brings what he knows he can put in front of you. And all of a sudden, our flesh, there's your inspiration. There's your motivation. But then there's the world. It's the theater. It's the one urging us on. It's the one that basically says, go for it. Then we not only see its strategy, we see its seduction. First John chapter 2, look at it again, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust, of the, eye, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is all terminology used in seduction. Is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, many call these, this list the three main categories of sin, and I agree with that. You can, you can take any sin and put it under one of the three headings. I, I know that. I, I've seen it. But, but here's something really cool. It's also a progression of sin. I want you to look at it. Look on your, out, your outline. Desires activated by sight. That's the lust of the eyes. We see it. It's the constant craving for more. The enemy knows how to market his wares so that they appear to be attractive. Now, let me say this about normal desire. Many of the things that the enemy comes at us with, what he's doing is he's taking a normal desire and, and, and he's making it corrupt. You do know that, right? And so normal desires come from God. God has given man certain desires and these desires are good. Hunger, thirst, weariness, and sex are not at all evil in and of themselves. Listen, but when the flesh nature controls them, they become sinful lust. Hunger is not sinful. But we in Baptist churches don't want to hear this. Gluttony is. Listen, sleep is a gift from God, but laziness is shameful. Sex is a gift from God, but has the potential to become destructive sin. Eve saw the fruit thought it would be good to eat. She saw the seduction of lust of the eyes is what we see next. Look on your outline. We see the desire activated by sight, lust of the eyes. I see it. But secondly, desire captured by the mind, lust of the flesh, I want it. The desire to fulfill ungodly pleasures. Eve took the fruit, ate it, and then what? She had to have it. You see, the world's way is to take what is easier and more pleasurable, pleasurable than the will of God. That's the, that's the world's way. Today, we are told to respond impulsively without restraint or self-control. If it feels good or right, do it. If it makes you happy, just do it. Live, live life on your own terms. The prophet Oprah was quoted as saying that. And I'm not telling you which prophet, never mind, whose prophet she is. But anyway, let's move on. I'm going to get some ugly letters this way. Here, here we go. 
Desire activated by sight, lust of the eyes. I see it. Desire is captured by the mind, lust of the flesh. I want it. Desire surrendered to sin, pride of life. I deserve it. And the world tells you that over and over again. You deserve it. Go for it. Become one of us. Eve desired to be like God by taking what she was told not to take. She thought she deserved it. We are told that we deserve things rather than seek to serve others. Next, I got to hurry. The lure of the world is strategy, is seduction, is suffering. The lure of sin has a very slippery slope. Did you know that? Very slippery slope. That's the reason people can walk in my office or say, I, I never knew I, I was capable of doing what I did. Listen to this. The scene was in Georgia. I've, I've told you this story before, but it fits here. It was in Georgia at Stone Mountain Park, the world's largest boulder. One dreadful day at the top of Stone Mountain, a young man walked unsuspectingly along, not aware of the gradual downward curve of the dome-like mountain. Suddenly, he became aware of the fact that he was unable to retrace his steps back to safety. He had gone to what many call the point of no return. Frantically, he struggled, and then he cried for help, yet his struggle and yell was to no avail. Horrified spectators saw him as he fell to his death below. What was supposed to be innocent fun turned to tragedy. Now, think of this. While the young man who died tragically was not involved in some gross sin. Do you know what the story does depict? The slippery slope of sin. The old revivalists and the old preachers used to say this. How many of you heard this before? Sin will carry you further than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. And every bit of that is so true. So the potential cost of sin, look on your outline, loss of self-respect. Boy, when you lose self-respect, you lose a lot. How about the loss of respect from others? How about loss of integrity, loss of innocence? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but let me ask you a question. How many of you have crossed lines in your life that you knew you never should have crossed? How many of you just, just long for the innocence that you once had? How many of you see little children who, who, who've lived in that world of guilt? How many of you see these little children, these teenagers, you want so bad to just, don't do it. The loss of joy, loss of family, loss of health, even loss of life, loss of peace, and for some, even loss of heaven. Not because they had it and then they lost it. It's because they never saw it. Because they were always deceived by the world. Next, the loss of the world. i got to hurry. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You mean to tell me that everything all these people are building their lives upon, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cease to exist? Yes. Yes. The man on his deathbed is a whole lot different man than where he was when he was living life. I've been there many times. I've seen it. And it's, it's amazing when you see these things. So first of all, that which is passing, a life lived for time. So many of us are caught up with time. Time. The workaholic will die unfulfilled. The greedy politician will die in despair. The, the pleasure-mad party-goer will find their life ruined by drugs and alcohol. King Solomon's testimony was this. Indulgence in the things of this world never satisfies. It only whets one's appetite for more. 
When the desire for possessions and sinful pleasures feel so intense, we begin to doubt that, the, that, that these objects of desire will one day pass away. You know why? Because we become obsessed with them. And we think it will always be here. We, never, we don't think. We only think in terms of time. Someone has rightly said, this is so true. When lust enters, lust, evil lust enters the human heart, all reality of God and consequences disappear. Next, that which is passing, a life lived for time, but also that which is permanent, a life lived for eternity. Let me just say this. This life is fleeting and definitely not permanent. Some of you, uh, how many of you notice as we get older, life speeds up? I think I told you, Tina's dad used to say that all the time. It's going to be gone before you know it. It's going to be out of this. Better enjoy them kids now. It's gonna be, they're going to be going out the door. I liked it then. I liked it when they went out the door. I don't understand. I don't, but then, <laughs> we won't put that on the internet. Anyway, listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says this. While we do not look, that means focus or live for, at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Look at the application. To make the right choices in life, one must see the big picture, living for eternity. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you right now, and we just, (laughs) Lord, this... This life sometimes is so difficult to navigate. We feel the pull here. We feel the pull there. We feel the pull of what should be normal desire that's that's been expanded to, to corruption by the enemy in the world. We know there's a strategist that's looking to tear us down, especially those of us who profess you as our Lord and Savior. And Father, I just pray for those that are in this room. Maybe there's someone here today that's never trusted you as our Lord and Savior. They, they really, this, this language that we talked about here today is just foreign to them because so many of their years and times and moments have been lived in deception. But Father, help them to realize that there's an there's a, there's a eternal way to live our lives. There's a way to make life's choices in such a way that we can, we can live for you. And Father, I pray if there's someone here today that that is a Christian, and maybe they're teetering on, on, on these things that we talked about as, as the enemy is there seeking to destroy them, their testimony. Father, I just pray you'll help them to, to reach out for that life raft that you're extended even right now in this invitation. That they say no to the thing that, is, that they're obsessing over, the thing that they know is outside of your plan, and that they will turn and take that call. Uh, that thought captive and, and bring it into obedience, Father, according to your word. Father, we pray, Lord, that you have your way in this invitation, Father. Lord, that you just do a great work in us all. In Jesus' name, amen.